Hi. Happy New Year and welcome to issue 11 of Scout and Birdie. Diving in. I'm Jennifer Keel. And I'm Anna Wolf. So we chose the theme diving in because it's a new year. And we're jumping right into it with a new Scout and Birdie. <laughs> yeah. So both of us just got our planners recently and they both came in on the same day. Serendipitous. Yeah. <laughs> Every new year I get a new planner and I am very particular about the type of planner I like. I like a Filofax and I write everything in it. It feels like a blank slate though, having a new one. Yeah, I'm also particular about mine. I've been getting the same planner for I think five years now. It's a moleskin, it's black, it's very plain and it has room. One side of it is a like a planner and the other side of it is just a journal. So I write down on one side like the things I'm doing each day and then on the other side I write down like my emotional state and like thoughts I'm having and like it's a diary on the other side. Filofax actually calls theirs diaries, like personal diaries. That's so fitting. Yeah. So, and I write a lot of extra things in there as well. I kind of use it as a mental tracker. So I'll write where I've been in order and I always think that if a detective came and interviewed me about where I was on this exact date, I would be like, I was here and I was with this person and I was eating a a lettuce sandwich. It's not something that I... (laughs) A lettuce sandwich. (laughs) Jen's favorite kind of sandwich. I really do love lettuce, but something like specific. I always include really arbitrary notes and I squeeze them all in until each day is just packed with ink. It's true though, because sometimes I'll forget a detail of my life and Jen will look back in her planner and have it written down Mm -hmm. for me. And it's very helpful to have a best friend who is so organized. (laughs) For me, it helps me remember if I've had an idea sparked at that time, if I have the track of where I exactly was, I'll be able to tap into what I was thinking about and remember what I was wanting to write about or like a new idea for like a character in a story or something like that. So for me, it feels like I have to do that. Otherwise I'll forget the things that I didn't write down and it it helps me keep track of everything in my brain. I like to think about my planners. I keep them all once they're done in the same area. So there's all of them stacked up now. Um, once they're, once the year is done. And I like to think that like, if eventually one day in my life I develop like Alzheimer's, like in the notebook, I would be able (laughs) to look at my planners and bring myself back via my planners because they are so detailed. I'm always thinking. That's smart. Yeah. So my therapist does not like the idea of uh, New Year's resolutions because they sound too permanent. So we always set... Uh, New Year's intentions, which just means like a light push in the direction, but without the pressure of it being like you have to do it. Um, So what would you say your intentions for the new year are? It's funny because I feel like I set my New Year's intention um, like earlier in the year when it was the Jewish New Year. And it sort of feels like, I don't know, I'm... getting so Jewish lately that like that I just don't feel like oh this is the new year but I think I want to continue down the path of like really being grounded and happy and like rooted in myself and being able to like 
see my friends and people that I'm like dating and, and career stuff and all those other things as like extra special things that like add to it, but that like the core rooted thing is me and, and it's good and solid. I think that's my intention. That's good. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> what have you been thinking about with your therapist? I actually haven't talked about it with her, but I kind of divide things in my mind into three categories, the tangible, the practical, and the aspirational. So when I think about it, so tangible would be something I can do tactilely, like physically move things around. So for that, I would say I'm trying to examine my belongings, my closet Mm -hmm. in particular, which I have a lot of clothing. And lately I've been thinking a lot about the idea of fast fashion and the amount of waste that is produced by these brands that don't produce garments in necessarily a sustainable way. So I'm trying to eliminate all brands that are like that kind of philosophy and donate them. So that's the tangible The practical, I'm introducing a schedule of deep work into my life, Mm. which is just like blocking off time to just focus on creative projects and be alone without technology, without interruptions. And the aspirational, I have a lot of plans just for Scout and Birdie Mm. and a lot of things I just have on the docket dream-wise. Wow. Yeah. Yours is a lot more fully thought out than mine, but that suits our personality differences, (laughs) I would say. (laughs) That makes sense that yours is formulated into three different sections. And Yeah, I've just started doing that in the past few years just because that helps you think about where you would place them in your timeline and not putting as much pressure on the ideas because some things are a practice and some things are a longer arching idea and some things you can do right away. Yeah. <laughs> so it helps me categorize it so I don't feel any sort of guilt and it keeps with that idea of it just being an intention. So yeah. I like that. Oh, good. <laughs> I'm going to do all of those too. <laughs> I'm going to steal your New Year's intentions. <laughs> I mean, they're pretty good ones. Yeah. Well, with those intentions set, I think it's a good time for us to dive into diving in. All right. We're here with Hal Baum. And Hal is here to talk about his song, Holding Hands Underwater, which is also the name of his EP. Welcome, Hal. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. We're so glad to have you back on Scout and Birdie. Yeah. Feels good to be back. Yeah, you'll remember (laughs) Hal from our fireworks issue this summer. So, Hal, since then, you have been very busy. Sure. um, Creating this EP that Jen and I both had no clue you were creating and when it came out it was such a like lovely surprise Mm. yeah that's nice yes i didn't i didn't publicize the making of it very much or that i was making one no i had no idea i just saw your instagram post and i was like well i'm gonna listen to this right now (laughs) (laughs) and then i listened to it while i was getting ready in the morning and i was like this is really a fucking good so (laughs) so 
it was a pleasant surprise to my morning. I'm glad. I would hate to be a bad surprise. Never. Never. <laughs> so um, tell us about the process of starting to work on this EP or mm-hmm. starting to think about mm-hmm. what that EP was going to look like. Uh, well, really, it, it just was like uh, working with Patrick. My He's the guy who produced it, and he plays pretty much all the instruments on it except my voice and the guitar <laughs> that I play. So he's all those synth sounds, those sweet, creamy synth sounds. <laughs> Um, exactly what I would have said about the synths. Yeah, very, very, very creamy, creamy tones. Cream. Yeah. Mm. yeah, that's maybe an accurate representation. <laughs> uh, but we recorded a song together just because he was starting to record music with people, and he was like, oh, I know you write songs. You should come record a song with me sometime. And then we recorded um, Put Your Head on My Shoulder, uh, which is the first track off the EP. And we were like, wow, this is, sounds great. You did a great job. This slide guitar, damn, hell yeah, this is rocks. Let's record more songs. And so then we recorded um, some more. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. It was it was really just like um, it came together very casually. I would say I don't think I don't think I was like I want to record an EP. There's gonna be four songs. They're just gonna have this theme. Blah blah blah. It was like we recorded that one song. They're like let's record another song. And so like I was like what's a good song that I've written? And then we recorded that song. And then we recorded some more songs. And then we were like this could be an EP. This could be a thing. And mm. then we were like yeah, let's do that. And then we did that, and then we put it out and made some music videos, and that was it. So you mentioned, like, having a lot of songs that you were, like, picking from. Mm-hmm. Um, do you just write songs, like, on your way throughout the day, or do you do you sit down and, and work on writing songs? How, what's that process like with you? Oh, I mean, it really depends a lot on... I mean, sometimes I'll... Sometimes I'm walking along and I'm thinking about stuff, and then a song lyric will come to my head, and then I'll go home and, like pound it out um <laughs> just pound it thank just you yes deep pounding of a song. uh i mean usually the way it works is i'll have like one line or a feeling or and then i'll just sit down with a guitar and just play over and over and over again and, and the words will develop as it comes along so i'll sing like the first line and then the second line and then i'll sing this first line and the second line and then another line will come and then i'll just keep playing the song over and over again until all the lines are there and then I'll go back if I feel like I need to and, like, rearrange things and kind of tighten it up. Mm. Is that uh, what it looked like for Holding Hands Underwater? Man, I wrote that song a very long time ago, and it's hard to remember. That may have been, because that was a very, that was a, a crime of passion. <laughs> <laughs> as, they say. Uh, as they say. So that might have been one that just kind of, like, fell out of me as I was playing the guitar. Um, then for making the music video mm-hmm. for Holding Hands Underwater, was that something that you sort of envisioned when you w- were working on the song, or was that a different process in creating um, the storyline for that? Um, it was a very different process. We had made the entire EP, and then I was getting real jazzed about it, real excited about it. I was like, this is good. I'm excited to put this out here. Um, but then there was like a period of time where Patrick was like uh, engineering it, mixing it, and mastering it. And then also I was waiting on like album artwork and like there was just a chunk of time where we had finished the EP but we couldn't put it out yet because it wasn't like fully ready or we didn't have all the stuff ready Mm. so I was like with this time I'm gonna make a bunch of music videos and so I had a whole idea for holding hands underwater where I was like printing out this girl's face over and over again and then some dude showed up with the 
face taped on his face, and then he tackled me into the water, and then I got sucked underwater into this whole magical underwater <laughs> dream world. That, Which is not the music <laughs> video, in case anyone's video. watched it. Not yeah. the music video at all. Um, and then, I, basically, I was like, I want to make this music video. I want to work with Will Sondheim. He's a great filmmaker. He um, was he did all the promotional videos for the Neo Futurist, and he's mm. a good guy, and I like him a lot, and we were friends. So I was like, I want him to make my music video. So then we just sat down, and I pitched him this big, elaborate idea, and then we were like, let's think of something a little more conservative uh, <laughs> that we can do with our time and resources. And then um, it was really his idea, mainly. Like, he came up with most of the story, and then um, we, like, got up at the crack of dawn, like, four in the morning, and went out to the lake to catch that sweet sunrise. Mm. I built a costume. If you've seen <laughs> the music video, I'm wearing this kooky costume. It's pretty a, amazing. A bowl it's great. On my head. Um, I went to some stores and bought goggles and a bowl yeah. <laughs> and some <laughs> pool noodles and hot glued it all together. And boy, it fell apart just immediately. I'm just, sure. Just I was going to ask, was there like an extreme upkeep in keeping that costume together? It did not. I mean, yeah, a lot of it was held on with like string and staples um, and then like tape and hot glue. And I will say the hot glue held pretty well. Mm. Like, there was plastic cups hot glued to pool noodles, and those uh, survived a dip in the lake. But I, like, I went in the lake with everything fully attached, and the first time came up, it was, like, the bare essentials remained. <laughs> Just the bowl, the backpack. The backpack survived till yeah. I put water in it, and then the snaps broke off because they were mainly made of tape. It was a hodgepodge contraption. Mm. Um, but it was fun to make. Our friend Nyer, who is also uh, featured on Scout and Birdie, is That's true. makes an appearance in the music that video. Is true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did not know her at all. I'd never, I'd met her before, but I didn't really know her and, or had a conversation with her. But I needed someone to be in it, and then I was like, "That's who I want to be." In. Yeah, yeah. She's, She's very good. lovely. She's so Nyer Na is a great person to have in very your music lovely. videos. Very good person. And now. Weirdly enough, not that weird, but now she's recording an album with Patrick Budd, the wizard, the man, the myth, the legend, ah. uh, the creamy synth man himself. The creamy synth <laughs> Dr. man. Dr. Cream, I call him. I call him Dr. Cream. I was going to say, is there like a collaboration in the works between you and Nyarg? That would be awesome. That'd that be would amazing. be awesome. Uh, no, not as, as of yet, but she's got a real Kate Bush voice with oh, a yeah. lot of warble in it. Mm-hmm. Love that. Okay. Um, Hal, you are... An artist who works in like many different forms uh-huh. all the time. You create music, yes. um, music videos. Yes. You are funny. <laughs> yes. And you're a writer. A writer. Yeah. Writer of funny mm-hmm. things and serious things. Sure. Um, how does that all inform the work that you're doing as a musician uh, or vice versa? How do you balance it all? Um, it's tough to balance it. I mean, I'm not trying to complain about anything ever. Um, I'm too talented. <laughs> Just too talented. Too many talents. Um, no, I mean, I think at the end of the day, most of what I do is writing. I think my appeal as a musician is really that the songs are well written. Mm. I don't think I'm like, no one's going to give me an award for playing the guitar. And my singing is not the best singing in the world. Um, you know? But I think the songs are well constructed and have good words in them. Like I can play like you know chords, <laughs> and that's pretty much it on a guitar. And I need Patrick to play all the other instruments and stuff. Um, so that I would qualify under writing. But I mean, 
that's where my strength lies in that I do a lot of different things, and so they all influence each other. So I write songs the way, like, if you're a musician and you're a really good musician, you're probably not going to write songs the same way that I do, you know, because I am limited in my abilities as a musician and limited in my abilities to play the guitar, so I really have to find more interesting ways to captivate and people's attention that don't involve being good at music. <laughs> so, like, with funny words or, like, words that sound nice or, like, real genuine emotion or like not to say that people who are i mean it would man if i could play well and do that that would be you'd be unstoppable i'd be the king of the world i'd be on the billboard hot 20 charts (laughs) um and i don't know i'm it's uh it's hard to balance all those things because sometimes i feel like i'm getting away with it and sometimes i feel like i am just half-assing everything i do Like that imposter <laughs> syndrome feeling. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that's there all the time anyway, but I just don't have enough time to do to take things as seriously sometimes as I want to. But then you're like, which one, you know, you're like, man, I'm a writer, I'm going to write this book, I'm going to spend all my time writing this book. And then someone's like, wow, I really like your songs. You're like, shit, I better be, I should be working <laughs> on music. Why am I writing this dumb book no one's ever going to read? Everyone likes these uh, EP, I'm going to be making music all the time. But then, you know, then you just don't book a show, and then you're like, well, I'm not even a musician, I'm a writer, I should be writing this book. And then you just spend all your time, and then you don't have any money, because <laughs> you didn't spend your time, I don't know. I'm jealous of people who, like, have one thing that they do very well, and they are just, just like, that's my thing, I'm going to be, I'm going to be in musical theater, and I'm going to audition, if I don't get it, that sucks, but I'm going to audition for more things, and then I'm eventually going to get it, because I worked really hard to get it, and then I'm really good at this one thing, and I'm going to make a lot of money and do it, and be good at it. I mean, and I'm not that, and uh, I'm jealous of those people sometimes. Yeah, I'm so envious of people like that, Mm -hmm. but then at the same time, I think people who have so many varied interests can create such dynamic artwork Mm -hmm. that is, it almost like needs that multi-interest. It needs a bit of like a, uh, I've got my toes in every little pool of water, you know, like I'm like, I've got my feelers out and I'm just soaking in all (laughs) of the information and here you go and now it's in the song and then it can... I think we're like so strict with ourselves about saying, "Oh, I'm a musician," or "Oh, I'm I'm a writer," or oh, "I I only do short form nonfiction," right. <laughs> and and that's all I can do. But I think it's I don't know. I think it's just more like heartwarming when it's something that's been informed by all of these other things, and you feel like more creatively rounded. Mm. I don't know. It's like the long con, I think. Yeah. The way, when I'm trying to think of things positively, it's like, you know, I'm, like, someone who, like, really works really hard at one thing is going to be much better than me, much more quickly, but, you know, 10 years from now, yeah. I'm, right now, I'm, like, pretty good at a number of things. 10 years from now, I'm going to be really good at a lot of things, and they're going to be so good at one thing, but I'm going to be good at uh, 10 things. <laughs> and you probably won't be burnt out the way, like, some people, everyone, sure. like, in 10 years... Right. They're going to be burnt out of doing one thing. It gets boring. And I think you get burnt out on anything, but mm-hmm. you get there quicker when you're just yeah, doing and, one. Yeah, and having so many different things that inform each other and that you're passionate about, like when you get burnt out on one, you can sort of direct your time. And I think it's like there's always this like finding that sweet spot between feeling like you're never doing one enough and mm-hmm. like, okay, I should switch to this one or, oh, damn it, mm-hmm. like this is the one I should be focusing on. And then that sweet feeling of like, 
you're switching in a way that keeps you interested in them all the time right. and and that they're informing each other and like, oh, this makes me think of this and so I'm going to start working on this thing and, and all of the projects sort of weave together in that way. That's true. When it all works, when it all works timing-wise and everything feels good, it's really great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you said how that you think like in 10 years you're going to be like really good at things. Yeah, in and 10 I years would, I'm going to be really good. I would argue that you're really good now. Yeah. Right, thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, well, thank you so much for being here with us. Um, everyone be sure to check out Hal's music video for Holding Hands Underwater on scoutandbirdie.com. But now we'll take you into the song on the podcast. Thank you, Hal. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, I don't know about talking to the fishes, but I'd like to live my life by the sea. Go underwater and look up at the sky. It's always looked like a different dimension to me. Escape from the city to the coast to the ocean, where I know I can find some fishes for free. Escape from the city to the coast to the ocean, where the water makes me wonder if you think about me sometimes. I think about you sometimes. Do you think about me when you're down at the beach sometimes? I've always loved the ocean, let the waves wash over me I've always loved the ocean, stick my toes in the sand I've always loved the ocean with her fingers holding on to me I think about you when I'm holding her hand sometimes Do you think about me sometimes? I think about you Think about me sometimes There's just something good about being underwater It always seems to make me feel so safe Like a big wet hug from old mother nature It's definitely one of my favorite places Go underwater and forget about the future Go underwater and forget about the past Go underwater and the present is forever In a dark cold space alone the moment will last Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know about talking to the fishes, but I'd like to live my life by the sea. Go underwater and look up at the sky. It's always looked like a different dimension to me. Escape from the city to the coast to the ocean, where I know I can find some fishes for free. Escape from the city to the coast to the ocean, where the water makes me wonder if you think about me sometimes. I think about you sometimes. Do you think about me when you're down at the beach sometimes? I think about you. Do you think about me sometimes? I think about you. Do you think about me sometimes? I think about you. Do you think about me sometimes? I think about you. All right, next up in the digital issue, we have Jerome Riley. You'll remember Jerome from his piece Intuition, which was featured in our fireworks issue this summer. Since Jerome wasn't able to make it in to record with us, his piece is available for you to read and enjoy online on scoutandbirdie.com. And next up in the podcast portion of the issue is Randy Kim. And I met Randy at a show called Is This a Thing? And Randy read the piece that you're about to hear and 
he had the whole room so captivated by this story and it is just such a beautiful story of recognizing the complexities of our family and our heritage and we just had the best time meeting yeah, with Randy. He's captivating in his storytelling and just in conversation. Yeah. So we are so thrilled to be sharing this story with all of you. So please enjoy. Returning home. I entered the short driveway of my old family home. I put my car in park and hesitated for a few moments. I slowly took off my seatbelt and waited another few moments. Then, the ghosts of my past surrounded me like a bedside vigil. The images of my own childhood memories conjured up as I remembered past summers, when my brothers and I would chase each other around. There was a basketball hoop that we had which reminded me of times when I used to play one against two, pretending I was Scottie Pippen, and my brothers were Dickie Simpkins and Judd Buchler. Enough stood alone, unused for years. Then I saw the two trees that my dad planted 25 years ago, as it stood peacefully and casted a tall shadow hovering over my car. The bonsai bushes along the sidewalk were slowly dying. From the looks of it, Everything seemed to be in its right place, but I wasn't ready to step out. I stood there gazing at our white garage in front of me, reminiscing back on how a home that once carried many years of important moments could feel so somber, empty, and uncertain. It was the first time in three and a half years that I came back to a place that I lived in for 25 years. I had not seen my dad during that time. The last time I was there, I hastily left with my belongings and stuffed them into my car. My dad was behind me, begging me not to leave. But I did not care. I did not give my dad a chance to say goodbye to me. I drove away and saw the garage door closed from my rearview mirror. I harbored great resentment towards my dad when I left, and it carried on when I refused to answer his phone calls and kept them out of every holiday since then. Now. I was sitting in my car thinking about how he would react to seeing me after three and a half long years. I got out of my car, and I slowly walked on the sidewalk leading to the entrance. As I approached the front door, I saw my dad sitting down in the backyard with his front facing the family garden. I called out his name. His back shook instantly. He turned his head around and saw me. He stood up and beamed with excitement as he approached me. He hugged me and said over and over again how much he missed me, but I didn't hug back nor smiled. He asked me how my brothers were and then how I was doing. I said fine and didn't want to say anything more. I created miles of emotional distance when I saw him because I was so focused on preparing for whatever triggers that could set me off inside. My father suffers from post-traumatic stress disorder. He is a survivor of the Cambodian killing fields a genocide that killed over 2 million Cambodians. In the last several years, I have watched them mentally suffer as a result of the injustices of the genocide, the apologies and reparations he never received, and the damage that he has inflicted upon my family and myself to combat the fury and betrayal he has felt from his experiences. In my adult years, he no longer became the loving, jolly father I remembered, 
But he became a person consumed with paranoia and a total distrust of society, which left him away from his friends, colleagues, and our family. My dad now, his hair showing silver colors blending in with his once pure black, has started losing his teeth. His once round brown face now looked gaunt and catatonic. My dad started complaining about his teeth and thought that I should be writing to President Obama for help. He insisted that someone came inside the kitchen and poisoned his food once. As he continued to talk, I remained silent, choosing not to question his theories. I searched around in my old bedroom, as accumulated in dust, but it remains untouched as it was the day that I left three and a half years ago. I quietly gathered a few belongings that I left behind. I picked up a few of the family photo albums. One of the albums that I discovered had an envelope inside. I opened it, and a letter from the U.S. Embassy came out. It reads, Dear Mr. Kim's son, As you prepare to leave Thailand after four months of work with the U.S. Refugee Program, I want to express my appreciation for your fine and important service. In the time during which you have worked for the Embassy's Refugee Section, you have helped lay the groundwork for a program that has successfully screened, approved, and prepared for travel over 9,000 Indo-Chinese refugees. Your willingness to stay in Thailand, despite the personal hardships involved to accomplish this task, is highly laudatory. Without your dedicated service, the program could not have functioned properly. I wish you success and happiness as you leave for the United States, and I hope that this letter will be useful as you look for permanent employment in America. It will indicate to prospective American employers that you have worked unusually long hours as a vital part of the U.S. refugee program for Indo-Chinese in Thailand. The loyalty you have shown to the United States government and your commitment to assisting your fellow refugees is commendable. Good luck. Sincerely, Charles S. Whitehouse, Ambassador. The letter was dated June 10, 1976, a little over a year since the Khmer Rouge took over Cambodia a month before his 23rd birthday. For the first time in many years, I was proud of my dad. He was not the person that was the abusive, distrustful, bitter man that I had known him for, but that I saw a man who once carried hope, charity, and determination. It's what gave him the will to survive, the sacrifice to help many of his fellow folks, and what led to him creating a new generation of his children being born here in the U.S. I took the letter with me. I came downstairs and was ready to say goodbye to him. As I was ready to leave, my dad brought me a box of vegetables that came from our family garden. He wished me well and hoped that I would see him again. He hugged me, but I still didn't hug back. As I drove off, my tears broke loose. I remembered how much that garden has fed our family and has now kept my dad alive. Then I thought about the letter and realized that his own sacrifice and desire to do good would never allow him the opportunity to heal. Instead, he has been trapped in a never-ending cycle of betrayal and self-harm that I have yet to find the right key to unlock him from. But even in the midst of his own struggles, he never lost the ability to offer love in return. For myself, in that one day, I found a moment that made me love him again, even when I don't know when I will ever return home. Okay, next up is Emily Matapusi-Para, who we love very much. 
And Emily has been working on a series of poems, which all are inspired from different dictionary definitions, and she is doing one for each of the letters in the alphabet. So we'll be sharing with you the letter B. And since Emily uh, lives in Rhode Island, Jennifer Keel will be reading her poem. So enjoy Betray, Defining the Unwanted Friend. One, to lead astray, especially seduce. Can't remember her name. Just that summer at the pool when she morphed from double A to double D under the same bathing suit. She transfixed me with her underarm stubble shedding deodorant clumps that dissolved in fluorescent chlorine. Two, to fail or desert especially in time of need. Finding us playing Marco Polo, she'd wordlessly slide into the pool when I was Marco. Blind in the water, I sensed her nearing presence from quick retreating splashes of the polos. Three, to deliver an enemy by treachery. I grasped ahead, she stood still, to let me find her, the thing I least wanted. When my hand touched her boob, she giggled and wanted to play again. I said, leave me alone, then dove off, avoiding her face. Guilt coming in waves, only much later. Four, to reveal unintentionally. She stayed away until the last day, when the snack bar cleaned the freezer and emptied pops into our waiting hands. I was licking blue raz as she walked up with red streaking down her leg. From afar, I thought she'd made a mess with a cherry pop, but no, we learned about this in health class videos which told too much without saying a thing. What do you do when it comes for you at the pool? I didn't know, but was immensely glad it was her and not me. Her in that ratty suit, which she finally threw away. Right, we're here with Sarah Schultz, who is an artist that uh, has created some comics uh, that she's going to be sharing on this issue. Thanks for being here with us, Sarah. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I found um, Comic Bun Bun on Instagram via my very good friend uh, who was on the podcast before, um, Liam, and they told me about this uh, Instagram account that I was going to love, and followed Comic Bun Bun, and I noticed, like, going through my feed regularly that I was always liking every single thing that was being post posted, and then I was like, I think this is my favorite Instagram account. Like, I think this is the Instagram account that I connect with most. <laughs> um, it's very refreshing to see in your feed, and uh, so thank you for that. <laughs> That's an overwhelming compliment. <laughs> <laughs> It's very true. Um, I'm very curious uh, how Comic Bun Bun got started and like what was the initial moment of inspiration or wanting to start Comic Bun Bun. So Comic Bun Bun was a culmination of just me living in a certain space around certain people. And then um, 
I was I had been living with some friends who were married, and so I was kind of observing their relationship. And I had created this little poster of bun buns, just doing things that were cutesy and that I'd kind of just got to experience firsthand of my friends doing and interacting with each other. And so it kind of sat on the back burner for a really long time. But when I moved to Chicago and I had lost the use of the studio space and most of my practices that I had developed over time were kind of just thrown to the side. I started a daily comic and that was what I returned to. Um, and when I moved, I actually moved in with a different married couple, my brother and his wife. And so I think that just <laughs> added to that sort of dynamic of um, watching our relationships and observing kind of how those people interact. Uh, you just see a lot of really tender moments, but you see a lot of really insecure moments um, and people in places where they have really different needs, but need to understand like, how to communicate with each other. And it's, I love it. I, I mean, I would recommend everyone lives with married couples. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds great. I'm going to go do it right now. <laughs> I also often get treated like their child. They'll like, go on vacation and bring me back things. Or <laughs> That's ideal. That's a great perk. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's lots of perks. Um. <laughs> so uh, for people who haven't seen the comic yet, um, Comic Bun Bun uh, has the couples um, cartoons that are two bunnies. Mm -hmm. And then there's, uh, I guess, sort of the like single person or the person who's um, not coupled in the comics, at least, um, which is a possum. Um, and yeah, uh, we were talking before this about you, like, your connection to the possum character. Uh, yeah, I mean, one of my friends called me and was telling, talking about how they liked my comic, and she's like, you're the possum, and I was just like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, because, I mean, it's really funny to be in this place where I see a lot of successful relationships, but then feel that I can't translate it <laughs> for myself in some way. Um, and so the possum's just like, I don't know, such a... Like, I want to say she's a realist, but she's pretty pessimistic at the same time, but like kind of self-indulgently so, um, but kind of operating or in the same world as the Bun Buns, but feeling really disconnected to them in some way, like, like seeing and appreciating their relationship and feeling like she's floundering and like can't figure it out for herself. Um, but um, most of the comics are sort of like, my gut reactions to the things that are going on around me. Everyone turns into a comic. <laughs> <laughs> they, the comics do feel hyper real. Like, I've definitely said many of the things you've written into comics, so I, I think it makes it very relatable. Yeah. Before you um, came over to record, Jen and I were looking through the Instagram account, mm -hmm. and we were like, oh my gosh, this one is so like me, and... And yeah. I think that that's the beautiful thing about it is that it is so extremely relatable and the vulnerability and the like self-indulgent sadness and mm -hmm. all of those feelings that can feel like very isolating a lot of the times mm -hmm. are extremely relatable and we can all connect to those moments, yeah. especially um, when they're portrayed like as an adorable bunny and mm -hmm. possum. <laughs> can accept it a little more. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's kind of cute when they do it. It's much cuter. <laughs> much cuter. <laughs> Maybe I look that cute when I'm... <laughs> You know, playing sad songs over and over again. I look more like a raccoon with the <laughs> mascara running down, but... <laughs> I don't know. I think there's, like, something 
like beautifully human about like those emotions. Like, I don't. I know. I, I know they're the ones that we want to hide and have with ourselves, and we think they make us ugly, but I think they just make us human and. Being humans, beautiful, and like I don't know, like yeah, I agree totally. Do you find that in your other work that you do as an artist, you tend to stick to ideas that um, are like featured in Comic Bon Bon, like relatability and? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us more. <laughs> so much of my like, my work in grad school was based around labor and rituals and growing up in an extremely religious household and like, a lot of the fundamentalism that came with that and it's very much not like the bun buns it's not I mean maybe there's some daily ritual things that are similar but bun bun is a therapy for me I mean maybe they are similarly similarly confessionals like, to like me working through like, with the things I need to but the subject matter is a lot different and the way that they look is a lot different. I think the way people approach them is a lot different. So, it's kind of like the self care aspect of like this is my happy place. Yeah, yeah. Bun Bun's so self indulgent. <laughs> <laughs> it's good. I like that. Yeah, it's very good self indulgence. So keep yeah. it going. <laughs> yeah. I think like some of the best art can come out of us being self indulgent and really just be honoring like that part that I really want to see right now. So yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. So thinking towards the future, what would be your ideal dream for comic bun bun? Oh my gosh. I have so many, um, <laughs> from very small to just like, larger scale. We were talking oh. about stickers before, which I think is a very <laughs> good dream. Yes. I, I just want to buy a million bun bun stickers, have them like have like, every comic practically made into a sticker and then just paste it everywhere. Just because I just love the art that's on the streets and that's for everyone and things that people can just, there's so many like, fun like graffitis that I see that I'll just be like, Oh, that's great. That just, like, made my day. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I can vouch for Jen and I that if you are trying to, like, tag the streets with Comic Bun Bun, we would, we like, would, go out we and work go for you. We would go out and tag, like, no other. Yeah. <laughs> you should be expecting a box of Bun Bun stickers. Yes. <laughs> it's my dream. Um, I've also, I really want to um, basically make a zine, a Bun Bun zine that you would, could unfold and open and one side would be a poster and the other like and when you fold it back down it's a book which is also there these are very attainable dreams um, yeah <laughs> that's the best kind <laughs> I, I mean beyond that I mean obviously everyone wants people to see their work and I want that but um other than I don't know I just like that bun bun's out there and I just I think that I just want it to continue to be out there to some degree I don't think I have, like, huge aspirations. I just have a very, like, reasonable aspiration yeah. for fun fun. Um, I think they're reasonable comics. Yeah. I mean, I agree that I think everyone should be seeing them, and I think yeah. that uh, if you're curious, you should go on to scoutandbirdie.com and check out the ones that we're featuring. And then after that, you can go to Sarah's Instagram, Comic Bun Bun, and follow that, too, and keep up with them there. Right, and show all your friends. Yeah, yeah. Let <laughs> everyone, everyone know. <laughs> thank you so much for being here with us yeah, today, thank Sarah. You for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.
All right. Next up, we have Anna Rose Wolf, my wonderfully talented co-host and best friend. And we're so excited to share with you Anna's piece, In a Wormhole, somewhere between North and Clybourne and Clark and Division. I am dating a girl, and things are switching in my brain because I used to walk around Chicago and see boys and men and always question what they were seeing in me. And I would make sure that my hair and makeup was good and that my armpits smelled nice and were shaved and that my vagina smelled nice and was shaved. And I just don't really care about all that at this point. And I would walk around Chicago and see girls and women and I would see them as my competition. And I would instantly rank them as cuter than me or not cuter than me. And I would look around a crowded red line car and rank the women in my mind, feeling significantly more confident when I was at the top or close to the top of the ranking. And I would think things like, if a nuclear bomb went off and we were all somehow stuck in this CTA red line car indefinitely, which of us girls would be most sought after? And I didn't even think about things like, what would we eat in this somehow airtight bomb shelter of a CTA redline car? Or where would we pee? Or would there even be enough air for all of us? Somehow, in this small post-apocalyptic society that I have often created in my mind while stuck in the wormhole somewhere between North and Clybourne and Clark and Division, the only real thing that mattered to me was which of us girls would be most wanted by the men. But now, I am dating a girl. And she told me that there's a head nod. She says that butch or more androgynous looking lesbians when they cross paths will give each other a head nod or a look. She says it's sort of a I got you or a I see you look. And when I'm alone, people don't really give me the look. People don't really assume that I would be dating a girl. But when I'm holding her hand, we both get the head nod. We both get the look. When we pass a butch lady or another lesbian couple, there it is. And sometimes we get a head nod from a non-coupled, non-butch lady. And maybe that woman is a lesbian or maybe she's not. And maybe it doesn't actually matter if she's a lesbian or if she likes dudes or whatever. There still is a silent, I got you. I see you. And I wish I got that head nod when I wasn't with her, when it wasn't clear that I was dating a lady. And I wish I gave the head nod before I was with her, before I even had the idea of dating a lady. So, I'm falling in love with a girl. A really cute girl who I have this huge crush on. And when we walk down the street holding hands, I am so happy. One, because wow, this beautiful person is choosing to hold my hand when she walks down the street. And two, because it feels like my silent apology to all the women I have sized up and grouped. All the women I have disliked because they're either not as pretty or prettier than me. All the women I have ranked in the airtight red line bunker of my mind. Silently by holding her hand, I am saying sorry to you. You were not a threat to me, and you never needed to be. And I wish I could find a way of saying sorry when I wasn't holding her hand, and I wish it hadn't taken me up until holding her hand to realize how sorry I am. Sorry to you, but also to myself, for thinking that your worth diminished mine and that my worth was somehow greater when belittling yours. Sorry for the years of either hating myself or hating you. And maybe when I'm walking down the street or sitting on the red line knowing, just really knowing how sorry I am, maybe that could be enough. So I'm sitting on the red line with the girl I'm dating and this really young, very cute lesbian couple comes and stands in front of where we're sitting. And I squeeze her hand and she's not very good at knowing what volume to speak at when we're in public. And she loudly says, Anna, look at that really cute couple. And I blush and look up at them and they laugh, looking down at us, all smiling, heads nodding. 
And in that moment, it feels like, somewhere in the wormhole between North and Clybourne and Clark and Division, silently we were saying, I got you. I see you. All right, next up we have Elliot Bessman. And I know Elliot from multiple different things. Our paths uh, cross in a lot of different ways. Elliot and I uh, go to the same like spiritual Jewish community. Um, and so we like celebrate Shabbat and a lot of holidays together. And then we also um, recently did a show together, uh, Is This a Thing? And Elliot read this beautiful piece and now we're so glad that they're on Scout and Birdie with this beautiful piece. Yeah, so please enjoy their piece. Pinch Hit Meets Vote. My mother was a prominent member of the women's segment of Heska Muna Synagogue's Heverkadisha Committee. A Heverkadisha committee is responsible for carrying out the logistics and traditions surrounding deceased Jews in the community. One of the primary duties is tahara, which is the ritual of purifying a corpse for burial. It's carried out by a minimum of four official, gender-relevant Jewish adults. And I am 14, in that weird liminal state between being a Jewish adult and a legal child. My lifelong love affair with the internet is still in the courting stages, and I've flunked out of every sport, artistic pursuit, and enforced social situation that my mother desperately tried to push me into. My hobbies were wandering the woods near the house, skirting the carefully guarded borders monitored by the neighborhood dogs, trespassing in yards without dogs, and grave robbing. I would find the corpses of possums, birds, or stray cats, and carefully stash them where nature could take its course in peace. Once the flesh had rotted away sufficiently and the tendons had dried, I would take the body home and soak it in bleach to clean the bones. For some reason, my parents let me do this. I think they were just happy to have something actively interesting me. And I was also a lifelong atheist, which for Jews isn't really a problem. But I was also direly morbid. I'd always had a desire to participate in the Hebra Kedisha, but my ambitions would have been to see a dead body, not a dead person. It felt like an inappropriate mindset to bring to a funeral practice. So it's 4th of July weekend. I'm out in the blazing 90-degree weather, which, given that it's Knoxville, Tennessee, counts as mildly balmy, weeding my mother's garden. There's dirt caked under my nails and around my knees. My mother steps out onto the porch and says, Sarah Rosenberg just passed away. Do you want to do Heverkadisha with us? Everyone's out of town for 4th of July, and we don't have enough people to do it. Now, full confession, I don't actually remember her name, but there's a fairly good chance given this community that it was Sarah. Jews don't embalm, and funerals are ideally held three days after time of death. As I mentioned, it was also 90 degrees, so this body will not be getting any fresher. I scrub down, I get dressed in the cleanest sneakers I can find, with a blouse that manages to pass my mother's discerning tastes, and an hour later we're standing in the waiting room of Rose's mortuary. Our partners are my mother's friend, Martha, and her daughter, Ellen, also 14, and just a few months past her own bat mitzvah. Ellen was, and still is, the pinnacle of fashion-flaunting, high-achieving, extracurricular-participating, boyfriend-and-career-holding, nice Jewish girlness. 
Meanwhile, I've flunked out of nice Jewish girl so badly, I'm currently training to be a nice Jewish boy. We meet each other's eyes, silent. Her hair is perfect, and I still have dirt on my knees. Neither of us are sure what we're doing here. The nice young men in their tasteful suits show us into the back room. We pass the threshold from comforting fresh flowers and pamphlets on handling grief into glaring fluorescent lights illuminating a tile floor and a large metal table. Buckets and sponges are on one side near a large metal sink, the kind you see in the back end of kitchens. On the table is a long wooden board, and on the board is Sarah in her hospital gown. Sarah doesn't look dead. She looks old. I can't imagine she was younger than 80, and maybe that's why it's easier for me to imagine she's just asleep. Her hair still manages to be nicer than mine. We wash our hands before putting on paper aprons and latex gloves, because thousands of years of tradition doesn't mean we toss germ theory out the window. I don't know what she died of, besides chronology. My mother passes out printouts of prayers, and we say the first one together, addressing it in honor of Sarah Bat... Bat... But whoever she was the daughter of, which I also deeply apologize for forgetting, it was possibly Rebecca. I've been saying the same roster of prayers in synagogue for over a decade, internalized to the point that I sometimes sing them in the shower. But my tongue stumbles over this new one. At that time, there'd never been a death in my family that I was old enough to care about. The worst we'd ever had was the loss of a hamster, and no one really recites Yisker for a hamster. Martha takes out a pair of scissors and cuts off the hospital gown, and then we are standing in a cold, gleaming room with a naked dead person. I was warned about this, but it doesn't make the situation any less awkward. We say the next prayer, again unfamiliar to me. I busy myself with distributing paper towels because I can't figure out where to put my eyes. Bare guts and muscle are fine, but when there's skin on top of it, I feel uncomfortable. I picture myself, Hana Batuvia Vilavana, naked and unresponsive while I'm being worked over by a quartet of strangers. The part where I don't have my pants on is more unnerving than the part where I'm dead. We start our washing at her head and move downward from there. Where there are band-aids stuck to thinning skin, we remove them and tuck them next to her. Sarah's body was deteriorating long before she died, and when we disturb a scrape or a scab, the paper towel is also tucked next to her. The custom is to be buried with as much of you as you had when you left the building, pacemakers and hearing aids included. At each stage, we lift and pour one of the buckets of water down her body. The water flows down through grooves in the old wooden board to the sink at the end of the table. The board itself must be almost as old as Sarah. I can see that the synagogue name carved into it, Heska Muna, is spelled with a CH at the beginning, and I know that they changed it to start with an H decades ago. I wonder how many dead people have been on top of this slab and how they managed to sanitize it between corpses. She is pure, she is pure, she is pure, we recite, the older women with practice comfort, and Ellen and I hurrying to catch up. When my mother accidentally drops one of Sarah's hands, she murmurs an apology, nearly laughing. Martha takes on the patter of a hairdresser, speaking to Sarah as she runs a comb through her hair. One of the other Hevrakadisha procedures is Shamira, sitting with the body from death to burial. Aside from the historical necessity of making sure nobody steals the body, because apparently that used to be a thing, tradition holds that the spirit stays near its previous housing for three days after death. It's confused, lost, lonely. 
We say prayers and psalms to comfort it until it finds the will to pass on to the next step. I'd never talked to my corpses before. The bird was not told it was a pretty bird as I dipped it in bleach and watched the sinew melt away in patches. Listening to that conversation, it's much harder to conceive of Sarah as just an object. We dry her off, and Martha arranges the loose strands of Sarah's hair next to her ears. My mother delicately unfolds the white linen clothing resting on a nearby table. We start with the bonnet, then the pants, lifting each limb carefully. For the shirt, I put her hand through the sleeve and reach in through the opening at the cuff to pull it through. At Sarah's age, perhaps she was used to having someone else dress her every morning to help her with what her body could no longer accomplish. And I'd held enough cold, bony fingers with drooping skin during Shabbat services that this one felt no different. Something about me was like catnip to empty-nested Jewish old ladies. For the moment when both of our hands are out of sight, I have this sudden vision of her hand coming to life to grasp mine. When it doesn't, I'm almost disappointed. We do the jacket, then the belt around her thin waist. In the final step, we cover her face with a white cloth and wrap the burial sheet around her body, swaddling her like an infant. The nice young men in the tasteful suits come in, silent and polite, and lift Sarah from the table into the plain pine box. Our final recitation isn't directed to God, but to Sarah. The four of us ritually apologize for any indignity we may have visited upon her during the process, and then pause as if to wait for any possible complaints she may have wished to offer in reply. As the box is closed, we stream out one by one. The drive home with my mother is quiet. A year later, I'll do the same thing again for another person who I barely knew and whose name I've long forgotten. I'm still an atheist. I don't believe in a god or an afterlife. And while I'm not always successful, I do my best not to believe in ghosts. I'm definitely not cured of grave robbing. My prized dog skull and leg bones were turned into accessories for a Mad Max-themed costume party late last year. So I can't put my finger on what in that room felt so sacred to me. In Jewish culture, tending to the dead is considered one of the highest mitzvot, good deeds. You are offering favors that the recipient cannot possibly return. Your personal beliefs don't matter. It matters that you're there to wash the grime from her skin when you will be the last person to ever see her face. That you behave as if she still has authority over her own body after she's no longer there to enforce it. That you show up when there's no one else left to do it in your place. I don't believe in souls that linger after burial. I don't want to be buried with all of my parts if some of them can go to help others. And I still hope that there's a little quartet of strangers there to see me off when I go. But I may put it in my will that I get to keep my pants on. that's it. Thank you so much for being here with us. If you want to keep up with us, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram or Twitter. 
And if you are interested in being in a future issue of Scout and Birdie, you can go onto our website, scoutandbirdie.com, and click on the submission tab and send in your submissions to us. We'd love to see them. I'm Anna Wolf. And I'm Jennifer Keel. And we're going to play you out with another song by our wonderful friend, Hal Baum. It's called Put Your Head on My Shoulder. We'll see you next time with issue 12. Truth or Dare. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. We were riding the train Through the tunnel of light city at night We had been to a party or two who gotten into a fight Laughed it off later on At the end of the night Lay your head upon my shoulder Or run my fingers through your hair in the park eating lunch after work watching old ladies do tai chi and sharing dessert you rub the sleep from my eyes I fix the hair from your face you stick your fork in my thigh and ask if I want to taste you're there.